just realised I was wearing this shirt the last time I spoke, last month. I've got more than one shirt, honestly. Uh, let me start by encouraging those of you who didn't see David speaking this morning to get onto YouTube and read. I'm getting a reverberation there. Um, let me encourage you to get, get onto YouTube and listen to it. It was such a good message. Uh, something, a really important message about honour, which we all need to hear. Um, I can't match David's story about uh, him and Wayne going treasure hunting, but I wanted to start by just telling you a little story that I read recently. I've got a book of daily Celtic prayers, and this story was in there. It's about a man who was walking along our beautiful coastline, enjoying life when all of a sudden he tripped, stumbled, and fell over a cliff. But he managed to grab hold of a clump of grass right at the top. He was dangling there on this cliff. He couldn't get a foothold or another handhold. So he started to shout, Is there anybody up there? And a reply came, Yes. Well, who are you and can you help me? I'm God. And of course I can help you. But you have to do exactly what I tell you. Didn't have much choice, so he said, okay, what do you want me to do? First said God, I want you to let go. So naturally the man asked, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> amusing, I found it amusing. But there's a serious part to it. I thought, he didn't trust God because he didn't know God. And how can anybody trust God unless somebody tells them about God? They've got to be introduced. The church of God has a message for the world. To the unbelieving world, it's an evangelistic message. And it's a vital part of the role of the church. But it's not the only message that the church has. The church has a responsibility to talk to those who've already devoted their lives and given their lives to Jesus. To impart knowledge and understanding to build up the saints, to bring them to maturity, establish them in the faith. And this is the message that's in the book of 1 John that we're looking at in this short series. The apostle's purpose in writing is to give assurance to his readers. In 1 John 5 verse 13 we read, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. The uncertainty of his readers about their spiritual status was caused by an unsettling conflict that was raging at the time. Some people who'd been in the church had now left and they were now propagating a dangerous heresy and a false doctrine. The heresy was mentioned last week by John. It's a forerunner of Gnosticism, a Greco-Roman philosophy that caused all sorts of serious conflict and confusion in early churches. Gnosticism taught that all matter is essentially evil and all spirit is essentially good. So they said the true God 
couldn't possibly come to live in a body of flesh and bones. They were saying that Jesus was really just a spirit. That the supposed body that he possessed was apparent, not real. But in saying this, they were obviously denying the incarnation and the resurrection. So John's purpose here is to expose the heresy of the false teachers and to confirm the faith to the believers. The letter is not written from an intellectual or theological standpoint. It's a very practical letter. And yet, from the very start, John's been laying down some fundamental doctrines that are important. Last week, John went through the first chapter and he, he, he brought up some fabulous points. And I just want to highlight a couple of things. The first is that in chapter 1 it says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And therefore we must walk in the light. And then secondly, knowing that his readers are told this, they might feel pretty hopeless. Some have fallen into sin and they might think that they've no right to go back to God. So John provides this consolation. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we come to chapter 2, and I'm going to look at the first six verses. We haven't got time for any more than that, I'm afraid. Uh, I find these first six verses absolutely packed um, with all sorts of fantastic information. During the first two verses, John continues to lay down foundations that, onto which he's going to build the rest of his letter. Now, I, I was an architect before I retired, so I know how important foundations are. And the more unstable the ground that you're building on, the more important the foundations are, the stronger and the deeper they have to be. So after the words of consolation in chapter 1, John now tells his readers, Dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. He's saying, don't take advantage of the consolation. One of the things that the Gnostics were teaching was that the human body being evil was just an envelope for the spirit. So whatever you did with your body didn't matter. And that, for them, allowed all sorts of licentious behavior, which the Christian church would obviously deny. John's saying, don't say, well, because the blood of Jesus covers all of my sin, I needn't be particularly careful about the way I live. Sinners need to know that Jesus died for them. That they can be fully and freely forgiven. But forgiven sinners also need to know that this is not a reason to carry on sinning. Both statements are true. They're at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. One of the great themes of this letter is that of fellowship with God. John knows that if we want to have fellowship with God, if we want to be able to pray in the hour of crisis, we need to keep the lines of communication clear. We need to avoid any obstacles that would hinder our access to God. 
So he's saying, I'm writing this to you not to encourage you in sin and license, but in order to keep you from sinning. But he can't leave it at that. John was a great apostle. He was the apostle of love. And I think he probably particularly, was particularly close to the people he was writing to. So after telling them not to sin, he again follows it with more words of comfort and consolation. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And this is the first great principle that we need to acknowledge when we're seeking to deal with sin. There is no forgiveness except from within Jesus, in and through Jesus. The moment sin is mentioned in the New Testament, he, Jesus, is mentioned. As the New King James Version puts it, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John's writing to people who've already believed that Jesus is the Son of God. They're born-again believers, but they're in danger of, at the very least, being totally confused by these Gnostics, and at worst, blown right off course. There are all sorts of confusing claims from these heretics. These people might be conscious of, of sin. They might have been led astray. They're wondering how their fellowship with God can be re-established. And John says, Jesus does it by being our advocate. Now we tend to think of an advocate as somebody who's standing in a court of law representing somebody, presenting all sorts of pleas to try and avoid them being convicted of, of some sort of crime. But we shouldn't picture Jesus as desperately pleading on our behalf. He's not trying to persuade the Father and hopefully succeeding in getting him to change his mind about us. That's an impossible suggestion. It's important to remember that every act of God is accomplished by all three persons of the Trinity in absolute unity. We're clearly told in Scripture, God, that's the Father, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It wasn't that the son suddenly decided that he was going to go on his own, come to earth, do what he did, and is now returned back to heaven and is desperately pleading for us for our deliverance, trying to persuade the father to forgive us. It was the father who sent the son. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. The eternal advocacy of Jesus is perfectly described in Hebrews chapter 7. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. As our advocate, Jesus is interceding for us. He's taking our prayers and transforming them before presenting them to the throne of God, always face to face with the Father. The early church fathers used to, they were fond of putting it like this. 
the Holy Spirit intercedes within us and Christ intercedes for us. Then John describes Jesus as the righteous one. He's referring to Christ's character. He became a man, but he never sinned. No fault was found in him because he was perfect. He is perfect. No one but the Son of God could stand in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, in those two opening verses, John's provided certainty about our whole basis of standing in the presence of God. And only then does he move on to his primary message. In verse 3, the apostle starts to apply the doctrine that he's been putting down. Verses 3 to 6 deal with one of those things that will interrupt our fellowship with God. And it's important to note that this is what he puts first. And as he comes to do this, he starts to use some of his favorite characteristic words. The first one being, no. You find it everywhere in his gospel and his letters. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. <clears throat> John tells these wavering Christians that they should know something. Christians are people who should know what they know. And John says there are two main things that we really need to know. The first is that we need to know the Lord Jesus. He doesn't say what it to know about him we are to know him of course we do know things about him we know he was born as a baby in Bethlehem we know him as a young boy in Jerusalem in the temple we know that he became a carpenter we've read the gospels and we know about the miracles we might be full of all this sort of knowledge but that's not what John is talking about here the Koine Greek language was a very, very precise language, and it had different words for the term to know. It ranged from having a slight awareness or knowledge about something or somebody, to having a greater knowledge, perhaps by intellectual study. But that's not what this word is here. The word used here means something personal, direct, immediate. It's not a general or superficial acquaintance. There's an intimacy about it. It's a personal and experiential knowledge. Our fellowship is to be with the Father and with the Son. In this verse, it's undoubtedly talking about the Son, but it includes the Father too. That, the New Testament says, is the position of Christians. Not just to believe things about him, but to know him. Jesus himself said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then the second thing that we're to know, John tells us, is that we are in him. We are to be aware of this mystical union between the believer and Christ. 
It's one of those great New Testament themes, isn't it? In Christ. You can find it everywhere in the New Testament. The analogy in John 15 is perfect, where it talks about the branch and the vine. It's a vital, organic relationship. It's not a mechanical attachment. It's a live one. It's a sharing in the life of the vine itself. John says we are part of Christ. We are in him and he is in us. We have received his life. And here we see the great New Testament doctrine of regeneration. Christians are not just people who hold a number of opinions, although we do. We're not just men and women who are aware of forgiveness, although we are. Christians are people who should be able to say, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Are we aware of that other quality of life that's within us now? And how do we test the reality of that experience? John himself could have quoted all sorts of amazing experiences that he had with Jesus. He witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. He heard the Father's voice from heaven. He was there when Jesus performed countless miracles. He lay his head on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. He must have heard the very heartbeat of God. He was one of the few who were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was the only apostle who went to Golgotha and saw Jesus crucified. Afterwards, he walked and talked with the risen Christ. He saw Jesus taken up into heaven as Jesus was blessing his disciples. And of course, later he had that amazing revelation when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. He's often described as a mystic, but John tells us that the way to test ourselves is not to seek mystical experience. Instead, we should examine our conduct and our lives. By this, we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. No, no doubt John again had certain people in mind when he was saying this, because the Gnostics that we mentioned earlier, they laid claim to some special sort of knowledge. They were initiated into some supposed mystical truth. They were always talking about their experiences. And as a result, they said they had unusual knowledge. John's saying to his readers, it's not experience that enables us to say that we know him. It's not feelings or sensations. It's not visions. It's not even miraculous answers to prayer. I thank God that there are experiences in the Christian life. And we're probably quite familiar, some of us, with, uh, with those experiences. You may have seen miraculously he uh, healings. I have. I know people who've seen angels. I even know people who've had visions of the Lord himself. But that is not what counts, John says. John says, that doesn't come first. That's not the safe thing. 
This is what comes first. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. What's my life like? How do I live? Am I keeping his commandments? In Luke chapter 11, we read, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And Jesus himself replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Jesus was not belittling Mary's close human relationship with him. But he was emphasizing that there is eternal benefit of having a spiritual kinship with him manifested by obedience to the word of God. Luke chapter 8 verse 31, Jesus said, My mother and my brothers are those, these who hear the word of God and do it. Keeping his commandments comes first. But what does that mean for us? It's not simply putting up a list of injunctions or rules on the wall and doing my best to try and keep them. It means I'm always concerned about living the Christian life as fully as I can. That my greatest objective is being well-pleasing in his sight. Tom sent me this quotation by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Only he who believes is obedient. Only he who is obedient believes. Obedience is imperative because it's a manifestation of the love we have for God. For John, as for Paul, and I guess above all, as for Jesus... The commandments are all summed up in one word, love. All other commands, commandments, the what to do's and what not to do's, they're all an overflow from this amazing love which has been revealed in and through Jesus. John's emphasizing that to know God is to love God and to love God should be inev lead inevitably to obeying him. And John goes on to emphasize that this obedience is a process. It increases. In, chapter, in verse 5, it says, But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. New King James translation again says, But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. That word perfected in the Greek is teleiao. In an ethical and spiritual sense, it means a bringing to maturity of perfecting. And so as we consistently obey God, carefully guarding his, his word, our love for God grows and is brought to maturity and completion. But it's a process. It doesn't happen instantly. But we're meant to be growing from one degree of glory to another. Becoming more and more like our saviour. The apostle himself has been through this process of course. As a young disciple he seems to have had quite a volatile nature. He could easily move from righteousness to vindictiveness. John mentioned it last week 
when Jesus and his disciples were en route to Jerusalem, John became absolutely incensed by the hostility of a Samaritan village. So he said to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Wow. That's the apostle of love. <laughs> and John and his brother James, um, the two sons of thunder, they seem to have had an ambition for preferential treatment too, asking Jesus for favoured positions in the kingdom to come. But as John walked through life, Christian maturity brought a measure of gentility to his temperament. He became preeminently known as the apostle of love. And finally in verse 6, we read, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. The Bible often describes the Christian life as a walk. Noah walked with God. God said to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. One of the greatest Bible commentaries on godly faith is found in one single verse. Genesis 5 verse 24. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. I think walking with God is a wonderful picture of the Christian life. It's a journey. If we say we are in him, the apostle simply says then we ought to walk just as he walked. If we say we are like the branch in the vine, then we must bear the character and the fruit of the tree. That should be inevitable. Look at Jesus. Look at how he walked. Look at his demeanor, how he lived life on earth. He walked as a humble, lowly, and meek person. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The world does not encourage modesty and meekness, but Jesus does. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He mourned because of the sin of the world. It hurt him and pained him. And above all, we see his love. His love towards God and his love towards men and women. His compassion and sympathy. His patience and his loving kindness. That's how he walked. And that's how we are meant to walk. We're all on a journey. But day by day, week by week, year by year, are we walking closer to Jesus? Am I closer to him now than I was last year? Tom, I think uh, I'm going to be rounding up if you want to join me. The goal of single-minded devotion is to know God. And remember that in the final analysis... We will be measured, ultimately, by how much we've come to know the Lord and allowed him to live through us. So the logical conclusion of John's message is this. If I have lived, sorry, if I have his life, 
it's bound to show itself. I can't be receiving the life of Christ without becoming increasingly more like him. I can't truly know God without immediately loving him. I can't walk with God without keeping his commandments because his love always manifests itself by doing what the loved one desires. Is it... I I think of the Lord standing in heaven before the Father. He's faithfully representing us. And I ask myself, is it my desire to faithfully represent him while I'm here on earth? Day by day, do I seek to know him more? Is it my desire to be keeping his commandments, to be fulfilling his word, to be walking as he walked? Does my life prove to me that that's what I am? If these are the things that are most concern you, be assured it's because you do know him. But we need to keep on that journey. Now, before I finish, there's one other thing that I, I, the Lord laid on my heart because I felt, I felt as if there would be somebody watching this, either tonight or in, sometime in the future, somebody who's at the point where they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that he died for your sins, that he was raised from the dead, and that he's with God the Father in heaven now. But you're resisting declaring that publicly. If, that's, if you're watching, let me tell you that I know exactly how you feel because I was there 33 years ago at that point. Felt a bit like that guy that I was talking about falling over the edge of the cliff and just hanging on. But I, was, I wasn't able to trust God at the time to let go. But thank God that I did. And if that's you, trust God, obey him and let go. I'll hand over to Tom with these words from an old hymn that uh, Tom reminded me about. Trust and obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey.